Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hey, everybody. Hello, monkeys. Welcome. It's Snark Monkey number 44. And it's with the great Phil Hendry. And welcome to any Phil Hendry fans who are checking this out. Welcome to the Snark Monkey universe. This is, oh, you know, it's a podcast, conversations with creative people, blah, blah, blah. I'd love to tout my unique take on things, my point of view, but you don't care. You're ready to skip ahead to hear Phil do his thing and hear a little bit of background. Well, you're in for a treat because we have a really great, candid conversation, a lot of about what it takes to get where you get if you stay true to your unique point of view and vision. And I'll let uh, Phil tell that story. We talk a lot about his radio path because I do have a radio background, so we have a lot in common in that. And also uh, how he was able to break out of something that felt relatively just staid and mundane and turn it into something almost completely unique in the world of entertainment. What Phil does, I don't know that anybody else has ever really quite done, at least not in the way he does. And you almost have to see it to believe it's possible. But what Phil creates, the universe he creates on formerly his radio, now his podcast program, is pretty incredible. And the fact that it's just straight, improvised, made-up-on-the-spot comedy with just a little bit of a... You know, we don't talk about the nuts and bolts of how he does his show because I, I almost hate to take away a little of the magic, but, you know, really, it's just... It's all this stuff and all these characters that come out of his brain, all performed live with no tricks, so to speak. It's pretty great. I, I don't use the word brilliant that often or genius unless I'm talking about myself, but I, I would I would probably apply it to Phil. Although, if I use the word genius, I would probably insert the word mad right before it. But still, you know, what geniuses aren't a little bit, woohoo, if you know what I mean. So, yeah, uh, uh, thanks for not skipping ahead, and thanks for listening to the whole thing, and I hope you enjoy. This is Snark Monkey number 44, a fantastic conversation with, uh, well, a whole bunch of people, but most of them coming out of Phil Hendry. <laughs> enjoy. By the way, you can say anything. You, you, can, you can say any you words mean you mean we can to. use all of the different words that I'm told we can, but then, of course, my podcast platform tells me if you do, of course, the advertisers oh, still oh, really? Yes, Are yes, they yes, bugged so, by that? Well, look, I, uh, I'm with Podcast One. It's a great, great platform. Right. Great guy, Norm Pattis. And Norm's a salesman. And yeah. Norm knows, uh, you know, we have other 
podcast platforms that I, apparently are taping the shows and then playing them for advertising. See, this guy said the word doo-doo. <laughs> so, I, but I, the whole point of podcasting, I mean, I'm sure that one of the reasons that you even went that direction was just the freedom of... Well, not so much the freedom to use language. No. It's the freedom to just do anything. Yeah. But yeah, sometimes it's fun... Because it's the character. You know, if, you, if I do a lot of characters, and sometimes a character ripping with a word like that is pretty cool. And yeah. uh, it also is refreshing, I think, even when I pop out with one, because the audience will uh, understand, boy, Phil really is angry, or he's really in character there. Uh, but, uh, but you're you not know, doing it for the, just the sake of doing it. So not, it's not, not gratuitous. Yeah. No, I think that sounds uh, lame. <laughs> Don't you? It's just, hey, I can say this word. Let me... Uh, Although you know, after years and years, I mean, don't didn't you haven't you always had that filter where in real life and because I have kind of known you in real life, <laughs> I know you have the biggest potty mouth of all time. Yeah, and you know I get angry and everything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but that we have and uh, we have got this ability to be able to flip that switch, you know, in our brains or whatever that doesn't allow those words out. Yeah, yeah, and and it still exists, yeah. you know. And I and I I to make life easy for our sales guys, as I've said. As long as you don't mess with what the content of what we're doing, right. uh, I don't mind uh, cutting the switch on language. Because, look, if I'm in a room full of people, f- women, children, what have you, I'm not going to be talking. I, I, you know, you edit yourself accordingly. I don't know. I, even since I had that conversation, uh, I was just listening today. A couple of things came leaking out. <laughs> you know what it is, Larry? Our podcast is a subscription we make the bulk of our money with our online subscribers. We make good money with advertisers, but we make really the bulk of our money with our subscribers. So um, uh, I don't want to make life difficult for the guys that are selling our show to advertisers. Right, right. But I also want to make sure that uh, the subscriber sort of is getting what he wants and what he's expecting right. is untethered, you know. Yeah, uh, to a material. certain extent, it's something that's not necessarily going to be dictated by, because that's part of what you've been resisting your entire career. <laughs> I, I, and I want to kind of circle back to that. I, uh-huh. I also don't want to travel. I, I, I would strongly encourage anybody who is a podcast aficionado to go and listen to your conversation with Mark Marin because that covers a lot of ground. And he's yeah. he's been a big supporter and obviously a fan of yours and yeah, has thrown you on his TV show. He and threw me onto that TV show. That on a, was, that on was... a really cool radio episode that I have to yeah. say was was kind of great. I've never seen radio represented in that way in in a half hour. Yeah, everybody on that episode, Mark included, has had their experiences with radio, and uh, uh, we're we're speaking truths there. You know, yeah. you saw Frazier, you saw Jim Ladd, myself, and and Mark, and Mark particularly when he was working at Air America had a uh, uh, odious uh, experience, uh, one that I, I you know talk to him about i think he he had people editing you know his show from new york and and saying things like you should never say this even right. if you're a program director you should never say that's not funny you should never ever say that to talent because as a program director it's not your job to judge whether something's funny or not you may not know but what you do know is whether this guy is maximizing what he's able to do are they are the uh, is the methodology there is the are the breaks there are the promos there and uh but when a pd uh or anybody in management says that wasn't funny well, that's a highly subjective. You, yeah. you can only judge that from the audience response, really. So. Yeah, that's a tough thing to do. And yeah. somebody, I, myself, who you know, I've managed creative people before, and you've got people around you who are creative, feeding you ideas. I've you know seen producers for you over the years, and you have to kind of modulate, you know, what's coming at you and what yeah. works for you and what doesn't. And there, there are egos involved, and creative people are are weird animals, yeah. and you can't you keep shutting them down with. Uh, you know, that's not funny, then the yeah. first thing I would go, you know, I go to when I've heard that from a boss is, 
well, you may not know what funny is. I mean, I, yeah. I'm not the. I know I'm not the funniest guy in the world, but I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I think I'm, you're funny. I well, I can. You are funny. I yeah. know that I can be. I know I can make other people laugh, and mm-hmm. I know that other people respond to it. So the moment you hear something that cut and dried, without any sort of thing to back it up, you're just. Yeah. I check out. That's probably why we've all had so many damn jobs over the years. That is true. It's, and and yeah. I had a, a a conversation with Adam Carolla, who also. Uh, has been through the radio wars. And Adam yep, uh, yep. said uh, something that was very, very true. I was trying to articulate it, but I think he, he hit the nail on the head. He said, radio's kind of like the New England Patriots. A championship team, well, actually a formerly championship team, that was making it by, well, if Tom Brady can't play, we plug in another quarterback, we plug in a running back, because the system, the system, the system is what works. Right. And for so many years, it was true. Uh, but the system's not working anymore. And that system of plugging people in. So in other words, talent was not as important as this larger machine. Uh, And so the machine got very dictatorial and got very choosy and picky and was going through this process of plugging uh, these modules in and out while the rest of the world was sort of overtaking it and uh, subsuming it a bit. And I think radio, uh, in my opinion, and this is strictly my opinion, uh, from the talent standpoint, has broken down because it's used that module process too much and if you go to television uh or, or film you know they treat talent royally yeah. <laughs> yeah. you know and they do it for a reason not because they just want to kiss their asses they do it because if they keep the talent happy then the talent does the best job they can do and right. then you have a successful product and i think it, to, to that end in film and television they've gotten over the idea that also they want somebody they can work with if you're yeah. talented and you're not a complete asshole then they'll go out of their way to make you happy for a long time right and, and i don't think that kind of thing is rewarded in radio at all anymore and no. that's what part of the reason why and I've, I've been looking forward to talking about this just because of your experience <laughs> of having had that radio journey that kind of we've all had at some mm. point and you're talking about the system. You and I both adapted to the system. I I was very adaptive because I never really found a niche where I could feel like I could just kind of throw the playbook out and create something new, even though I would have loved to have done that. Mm-hmm. But you, I mean, I even just looked at, uh, I was looking at a video earlier of you on KLSX, 1987. <laughs> 87, you're yeah. playing classic rock, mm-hmm. and you're doing weather reports, and you're doing a quick traffic thing, and it's yeah. Phil down here doing this. Yeah. And, yeah. and... I, it's weird to watch you in that mode, yeah. but you have been a radio guy where you were following format, you were doing what you were supposed to be doing, you were working the quarter hours for Arbitron <laughs> Diaries and doing all that crap, and at some point, you just had to break out of that. You had to find a way to get out of that, and I think a yeah. lot of guys who are easily following the system of radio are becoming obsolete, and it's the guys who have discovered this podcasting world this uh, alternative universe of what we always wanted to do which was just have a voice just be able to control our own creativity and destiny and yeah. you've made the best of that you well corolla and all and Marin and all these guys yeah well adam god man he's oh, he's, god. he's our god you know he's like close to a a, a million a year you know yeah uh, in terms of the the, the dollars uh we're making a good living but the thing uh, that's happened i think uh, larry that uh, not a lot of people talk about is that there has been a technologic revolution that has enabled it. And what I mean by that is you could say uh, back in the days when we were all doing our radio thing, boy, I'd sure like to do this kind of show, but we really didn't have any place to go to do that. Mm-mm. Which is sort of like saying, gee, I sure would like to paint the kind of paintings I want to paint, 
but there's only so many easels and only so many paintbrushes. Well, you know, that's not the case. Maybe there was way, way back when. But uh, the first guy who decided, wow, I can paint a painting anywhere I want, that was a technologic revolution right. in its own way. Well, that uh, took a long time to reach radio. Um, and it took a long time to reach films. But today where we are, anybody can make a movie. Mm-hmm. Anybody can reach the masses with a podcast and Wi-Fi. So as a result of that, the tools of art are now in the hands of uh, the people. And yeah. that's what I think something becomes an art form when everybody has access to the tools. That's and, right. and a revolution in a way. I mean, yeah. I, I, it de- admittedly, because I remember thinking this too, because I have a film background. I went to film school. and see how that turned out. Uh, and <laughs> Well, maybe. But now you should revisit it because well, now those tools are so universal. Uh, the moment all this digital technology became available, it, I, it, my first thought was, wow, it's going to be so much easier to do something like that. And, and my second thought was, wow, there's going to be a lot of crap out there because everybody's going to think the same thing. That's right. But, and the same thing's happening with, with podcasting. Everybody's got one. But the great thing is the audience responds to what's good. And, and, we, and, and if you don't have to worry about Nielsen measurements, Arbitron measurements, things like that, you can't help but find your audience if you're good. If you're good. Well, it's, it's, in other words, there's lots and lots and lots and lots of paintings and lots and lots of easels and lots and lots of watercolors, but there's only one Picasso. There's only one Rembrandt. There's, and, and, uh, and people who appreciate that will find those people, and more and more people hear yeah. about it. And, it, and uh, it happens with this kind of groundswell. And to me, that's what's revolutionary about it is that so many people have access to it. It's a great way to fail for a for a <laughs> long time. Well, it's true. To suck for a little while and, and, and no stakes, you yep. know, no high stakes or That's anything. Right. Yeah. And then when you kind of really get in your groove, like I mean, Marin is a prime example. I mean, you you had years to cultivate what you do on the radio and then kind of adapt it for what you're doing now. Yeah. I think well, Marin it, is a great example of somebody who was like, I just don't know where to express myself. I'm just going to try this in my garage and talk to my friends. Yeah. And it. And it developed into something pretty powerful. And not when only the that, fucking president comes not, in. I'm telling you that it was right? a moment because right? the president of the United States visiting Mark's garage was the was the day that radio, in my opinion, took a backseat to podcasting and to the new digital medium. Um, I'm not saying that radio doesn't command, as they like to say, we still have most of the years. And maybe they've got a lot of the the advertisers. Although I, there's an argument to be made that advertisers stick around while the you know ratings kind of go away. And uh, I, I I really don't know. Radio is going to have to, in my opinion, come up with something. But the point being, as Charles Bukowski once famously said, "Oh God, wow, you know, okay, God, our first Bukowski quote yeah, of the day." See, Excellent. He said, "God made a lot of poets, but he didn't make enough poetry." And uh, <laughs> there's a lot of poets out there right now. Right. But we'll see how much poetry has been made. But Mark is a, is a great example of a guy who. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, and, and, and maintained his humility so that he's still in the garage, and right. he's still at the house, and he still is walking around on his bare feet. But that's know? the thing about it, and, and I think, uh, I, again, I'm just really a babe in the woods as far as this goes, and I'm just getting started in understanding what it takes to, to get some traction in this world. But I think the big part of it is is not allowing too many other 
forces to kind of control where the content goes, that there are yeah. more people who are just letting you have these kind of rough conversations. You know, Marin does it. The Nerdist guys do it. I'm, I'm kind of following that model, which is right. I would like to think that the people who are listening to these conversations are here because they would like to hear a conversation. And if it happens to be really funny, if it happens to be informative, and if it happens yeah. to be emotional or whatever it is, that's the journey you take. And it's an investment. It's like when we were growing up and actually listening to albums and sitting down and listening, you know, from one side to the other and experiencing the whole thing. Yeah. That to me, again, is kind of culturally revolutionary that people are not just sitting still for 10 or 15 minutes, but they're actually listening to something that's an hour, an hour and a half, two hours and engaged in that. It may not be a huge audience, but it's a really passionate, fervent audience for that thing. Well, you know, the the uh, the the, uh, the metric now is download numbers, and yeah. I think the download numbers, uh, you're really doing well if you're doing around 100,000. I mean, you're really doing well if you're doing 100,000 a day. Right. Um, uh, but uh, I, I think that, you, you know, I used to say to people, I'd say, what makes a great talk show host? I said, well, you'll find out. All you have to do is sit somebody down for an hour and tell them to create uh, content right. without having a guest or any phone calls or any sound effects, or anything. Yeah. Talk for an hour, and then listen to that tape. And uh, I think that's a good way to start, too. Yeah. Because you find out what is interesting. You know, I, I do a pre-show um, for my subscribers, which is absolutely, you know, talk about vulgarity. I was just listening to it. I go, what did I do today? I can't believe it. It was really early in the morning. I was really angry, and I was going off with the F word and the S word and everything else about about Trump and trying to put it... That whole Hitler comparison, trying to put that stuff to sleep, oh, but at the man. same time give it some context, you right, know, right. and history. And I realized my passion in life has always been um, creating stories out of history. I love history, and I love the story of history. And if if I could, I would do a podcast for an hour a day on that. But it's too, it's way too much work. Everybody <laughs> expects comedy from me, so I you know I have to do that. Yeah. And so you do get stuck a little bit in what you know you. What you may be good at comedy, but you also may have other interests. Some of those you have to sacrifice. The audience you may say, I'm so good that I think I'll, you know, I've just been doing my comedy. Well, I, but I also love roses. I'm a rosarian. Let me do an hour a day. No one cares, man. You no. Know, no one cares, no. dude, you know. Well, didn't you kind of make a couple of forays into more traditional talk at a I point? Did. And And was that, and uh, <clears throat> we're going to jump around in history. I mm-hmm. usually like to be fairly chronological, so forgive me if I go all over the place, but um, I because there was a time where I was working with you at a radio syndicator. Sure. Uh, um, and that was the probably the peak period of my of of my uh, my the art of trolling talk show call. Yeah. That was satirizing talk radio at the time, yeah. right? And also, you were relying heavily <laughs> something that you can't necessarily do now in in the current state yeah. is that you were relying heavily on phone calls, the accident of people finding you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and yeah. when you had a national platform, that just yeah. that opened up the floodgates for a little while yeah. there. Yeah. But you did have a period where you you needed you felt like you had to move away from a strictly comedic show yeah. to talk more about issues. And was that it wasn't good. <laughs> you know, well, it wasn't but, good. But, but what was that motivation? What, the motivation was that I felt I'd this gone This was post-9-11, correct? Yeah it, well, yeah, it was well past oh, 9-11. Okay. It was on its way into the election of 2008. Now. Okay, yeah. And uh, oh, wow, I, I didn't realize it was that recent. Yeah, yeah and I felt, like, I, I felt like I had taken the comedy thing as far as I was going to take it. And I think I was probably taking myself a little seriously, like, no, I think I can make a difference. Uh, by com- you know, and I want to do some comedic commentary, 
uh, and and sort of work my way into this platform of mainstream talk radio because there was a lot of stuff going on, man. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and and also there was the what I thought was a big avenue at night. Uh, there was uh, coast to coast, but there's no real political talk happening. And uh, Rush was happening, and and I thought I ought to m- take advantage of that. Uh, and so I did. I went into a period of uh, two or three years where I was uh, uh, interviewing guests and uh, trying to maintain my humor, but at the same time do a kind of, if you will, a uh, uh, ma- mainstream sort of independent political view, which right. which turned out to be about the most uninspiring, uninteresting, <laughs> silly, stupid bullcrap, you know. Well, I, I well could, you're being a little harsh with well, this. Well, I, no, I had no label for it. You know, right. there's cats that are on the air that go, and I'm I'm your conservative, you know, right. I'm Mr. Common Sense. Right. So people would say, you know, and if you say, I am progressive, that's good. Well, what the hell is the dude that is either, neither one of those things? I don't know. Well, that's the, that's the tough part about somebody who actually is probably more representative of most of the rest of the people in the country, which is we're not usually that divided, I right, think. I mean, know. usually we, we there's more gray area than the press would probably there really is, man. portray. And the thing that is, is there's and the more problem is, you're right, you can't market that in, in any kind of way. Yeah. But, but that is a bulk of the American voter, for instance, and those people are very unengaged, which I thought was really kind of scary, because that means the only ones that are voting and getting involved are the far right and the far left. Right, right. And the, mid, the midtown, the ma- mainstream people, uh, you know. But anyway, uh, it sucked. I didn't like it. I don't think it was interesting. And, How did uh, your uh, hardcore fans? I mean, obviously, I don't think they dug it, and, no. and I don't blame them. Um, In a way, you're just—I mean—you're kind of literally hitting reset on you are on everybody yeah. that you've been talking to who come to you for for a very specific thing, and that's the point. You know, yeah. you you you're a com- you're a comic voice, you're a satirist, and suddenly you've decided you're going to do something else. It's kind of like I turned on a History Channel program one day, and the and it was about World War One, and the host was Michael Palin. <laughs> and uh, it just it just so happens I really enjoyed it. Yeah, Michael Palin was speaking very passionately about uh, the Battle of Flanders in World War One. He even found the grave of his grandfather, and I'm like, that's Michael Palin from Monty Python, man. That's, that's a keep, trip. You keep waiting for a bit to yeah. break out of this. Yeah. yeah, but he was very passionate, yeah. and and he, oh my god, he was looking at uh, the pictures of the wounded and everything. Uh, I really dug it. And I suppose I would have watched it, you know. Right. But I, I tell you, I, I, I can see people going to Michael Palin and saying, "Wait a minute, man! You're the guy that did the lumberjack song. I don't want to talk about World War One." I. I think what happens is you get a platform and you think, "Man, I can do a lot of stuff here. I don't just have to be funny." And but I did, and that's my strength. That's what I do best. I, maybe I'm a smart guy. I don't know. You know, people say you're intelligent. That doesn't necessarily mean you're a great. You know, uh, let me just tell you, you know, Rush Limbaugh came from a disc jockey background. Right. But in point of fact, was a much better, um, uh, I would say, radio entertainer as a talk show host. Because uh, I, I, I still see the satire in what he does, a little bit of it, not so much Yeah, anymore. I just wonder if he does anymore. Well, yeah, anymore, yeah. <laughs> I wonder about I mean, that. Rush used to really be, I think, regardless of his political point of view, very funny. Uh, right. A lot, a lot of things he did. And, and, of course, the EIB thing that he created was just fantastic. You know, yeah, the, I, mean, I that, am the authority, you know. That theater of the mind yeah, thing exactly. that, he, that he brought from an old school radio sensibility, yeah. which is to, to paint a picture, which he still does to this day. I mean, he, to, it, he very much still is that entertainer. I think he yeah. definitely knows when he's pushing buttons, except he's pushing buttons with he's well, preaching to the choir. Pretty he's much. preaching to the choir. And there's a lot of there's there's a lot that's happened to radio that has. Uh, the, the the political point of view has overwhelmed and and almost destroyed 
whatever entertainment sense there's been. I really believe that. And, yeah. and Rush is the last of the entertainers. And what's come after him are a bunch of hacks, really. Yeah. Just right-wing hacks, people that used to write, you know, used to be lawyers or whatever. And <laughs> they're boring as hell and well, they're angry as hell. Well, it's kind of like and, the way people copied Stern when mm-hmm. Stern basically, you know, set the template for what it is to whatever that shock jock thing is everybody thought it was morning zoo yeah or, be yeah. naughty and 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 tell every personal thing about but you actually have to have some intelligence and yeah. a storytelling ability and also just the, the very basic ability to understand what's entertaining that just kind of splaying your life uh, uh, across the radio airwaves isn't necessarily that compelling to people not no but but you see um when you know who you are and you know what you're doing you're always going to be very compelling and what I, I'll give you an example just the show that I do today is all me I do five different characters and I do an hour sort of radio a satirization of a radio show with five characters and I talk to and I also do characters on the phone there's a lot of people who say to me why don't you do guests why don't you have guests you know like Mark Marin has and I said I could but it, it ain't really what I do right. and so and you do doubt yourself sometimes you'll say god I should be doing that I should be doing that but really, this is who I am, and this is what I do, and and. But I that mean, the whole momentum would would it would be a different show, it would or it a different would. segment. I mean, I guess you could try and get somebody to improvise with you, but the fact is, there's so much going on in your brain. I, I have to get to that too. <laughs> One of the things, though, although that brings well, up it a has question, to do with Wellbutrin. And, no. <laughs> I was going to say, there's definitely something chemical going on with with how your mind works. Uh, but w- what about losing the callers, though? The that yeah was that a challenge because yeah. that was a big part. That's, they weren't necessarily guests, but that was essentially what your, it, the concept of the show was built it, on. It, it, it was, and it was, a, it was a moment of truth for me because um, a lot of things I learned, man, uh, Larry, and, and you were with me when I was doing all of that at the very high point of all of those phone call uh, bits that we did uh, was a great deal of heat for the show about how original and creative and what a great satire it was. But there's a problem with it. There's the necessity to get those calls. And you are all, always balancing between dropping the joke that, hey, this is a comedy show, but also making it seem realistic enough that you get that small amount of cum that's going to call in. Mm-hmm. Um, you got to make sure you got a really good phone screener who's going to make sure that those calls are coming through. And then you have to uh, somehow explain the show. Uh, it's, there's a lot going on. Yeah. What happened to me is I left the radio for a while, for about a year, and I did television, a d- TV show, and some pilots, and then I got really th- hungry to get back into it, and I mm-hmm. did the the thing, uh, the political talk thing. Uh, but then I decided I needed to jettison that and go back to what I was doing. And I told the people that it was syndicating me at the time, I'd like to do that. They said, great. We're all for it, Phil, you know, and uh, began uh, reinvesting myself in that. And we got about two more years out of it. But what happened was, you know, if you don't have that support, if you don't have a real good, strong support, producing support behind you, and your affiliates start to drop away, and people don't really get how to, you know, uh, present you, and and the phone calls start to drop away, and the yep. screening's not that good. And I, I remember losing my voice some nights because we weren't getting any calls. You so know? you were doing the entire, f- how many hours, four hours? Three. Three hours? I was doing three hours. Three hours of that nonstop has got was brutal. to be yeah, miserable. But I learned something. I learned that I could create um, a, a, a theater. I, I could create a play or a radio play of uh, a satirical um, 
voices of, of points of view and so on and so forth, so that when we finally got out of that God, excuse my French, goddamn contract <laughs> with that company, uh, I've said, go right into doing a podcast for an hour a day, and we'll condense it, and we'll create this show of characters and see what's, what it's about. And um, we've been able to maintain our business, and uh, we've been able to uh, uh, even put about 10, I don't know how many shows we have, 30 free. Yeah. Um, and who knows where it's going to go? I don't know. You know, I... I um, I know that it's caused me to reinvest myself in in, in theatric acting and, and trying to get out there doing voiceover. Well, that's the thing. It's, uh, for one thing, it's so unique. I mean, there's really I, – I can't think of anything else that's even remotely like it. Although I – and I want to talk a little bit about some of your influences because that's just – the crap you talk about on these things, yes. but, but but it seems and it is crap. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, somebody like Jonathan Winters, who kind of was that kind of guy sure. who created these original characters, because you don't do impressions, you're not doing yeah. recognizable voices from the yeah. standpoint of any sort of political figures. You're not doing overt parodies of, of people, although these are all individuals that I recognize as types. I mean, sure. that's the ama- that's the great thing is that yeah. every engineer sounds like. <laughs> Like your engineer, yeah. Uh, I mean, there's always the busybody, you know, Margaret. I mean, there's all of those characters mm-hmm. exist in our lives, so they're recognizable. I wanna, one more point, though, about yeah. the phone call thing, just to wrap it up, sort of. Yeah, yeah. The other thing that I recognized was that the world had rotated past that. You know, the passion that people used to pour into phoning talk shows, they're now putting into Twitter. They're putting mm-hmm. it into Facebook. They're, you know, if you listen to talk shows now, to the extent that they even take phone calls. Uh, it's always the same people that call. It's always the chronic callers. It's always, uh, they're not, I don't think the phone call cum is the way it was. Oh, I don't think and, so And either, I think yeah. that people, when they get pissed off now about something, go, I'm going to go to Twitter and write about it, you know. I'm going to go to Facebook. <laughs> they can write 85 <laughs> paragraphs of something about how much they hate this, and they don't have to fool with a talk show. Right. They're not going to have to sit on hold, and right. you know they can have an immediate reaction and response because they can put it up online somewhere. And the other thing is we live in a prank culture now. Everybody's pranking everybody. Everybody's got a fake voice here, fake character here, fake uh, Twitter account here, fake Facebook account. Everyone's <laughs> fake, 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 you know. So I really think that's played out a little bit, you know, right. unless somebody wants to take it to some all-new level like start World War III, which I think there's been a few people who have tried that. Mm-hmm. Um, or who was the guy that uh, tried to scare Paris Hilton into jumping out of an airplane down oh, in the Middle God, East? Who that guy yeah. was? Yeah. yeah. So anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt you, man. No, no, no. That no. kind of led up into what I do now. No, is- and, and, and what's great is, though, if you were willing to kind of take that leap and, and – uh, extract that aspect of the show, which I, I would have felt very wary of of that, of, of losing that interactive phone call situation. Yeah. Because part of the joy and, and frankly, the cringe factor for me, because I'm <laughs> such a little puss, uh, <laughs> listening to your show made me crazy because I hate putting people in an uncomfortable position. Oh, yeah. I was more than happy to allow you to do it as long as yeah. I didn't have to do it. It's, right. it. That was the thing. It was just like, oh, these people don't know what they're doing you know, but that was you know. kind of the fascination with it yeah. well but, it's also the kind of the honesty of it too i thought the callers were honest you know yes yeah and, yeah, uh, yeah but i i believe and i'll say this uh and and then somebody can come along and, and contradict it because uh, <laughs> i was taking some uh, some heat on twitter one night <clears throat> i said i thought oh i tell you who it was it was um I was getting it from uh uh dana loesch the you know the talk show host oh yeah her husband <laughs> and i i finally said I am 
the guy that killed talk radio, you know, I, I, because I and I really I said I trolled the trolls, man. I killed talk radio, and I really I really sort of believe it in a way. I uh, because after me, what, you know, yeah, yeah, was, you may. What you, does it mean anymore, man? You may well anything. have just kind of closed the coffin lid you know, on the, on the that. campfire of talk radio. Got a bucket of water thrown on it. You <laughs> if know? anybody who was ever uh, thinking about calling one of those shows again is like, no, I'm not going to put myself in that position. Yeah, who is this? this this is a shock jock show, isn't it? You know. <laughs> so yeah, I, but uh, um, so l- let me let me now circle back to yeah. kind of where you started because we I, I've always wanted to talk a little bit about some of those earlier radio days with you because we all those of us who have been through it have had similar journeys, multiple markets, multiple formats. Uh, you know, you have adapted to different places and different things before uh, the character stuff even kind of took off. But yeah. you grew up here in you. Did you grow up in Arcadia? Yeah, in that... Arca- Arcadia, California. Uh-huh. Yeah. And uh, were you a radio fan, like, right from the top? Or Pretty you, much, man. Yeah. yeah. Top 40, that Top 40, yeah. KFWB. I mean, I got radio history in my head, man, uh, that, uh, you know, goes all the way back. When I was five years old, and we were traveling to Canada to see my grandparents, and that's when I really started listening to the radio, because I was up all night in the car. And this is how small I was, by the way. I was standing up and leaning on the, back, on the front seat, so I must have been, like, five. Right. And there was my father driving overnight you know everybody else is asleep in the car and i'm listening to these stations fading in and fading out and coming and coming and they were talking uh, about what the temperature was in boise and the, <laughs> and i was absolutely fascinated with these voices from these cities yeah yeah i said i got to do that and then when i was about 11 or 12 i used to ride my bike over to what is now the langham hotel in pasadena it used to be the ritz carlton and oh, back right. in the day it was the huntington sheridan and KRLA radio was at the huntington sheridan so I would walk into that lobby, some little punky-faced 11-year-old kid, looking at guys like Casey Kasem and Emperor Hudson. And right. Bob. And KRLA in L.A. at that time, that was the one. I mean, that, that, that... station, KFWB. Yeah. And, th- and then along came KHJ, which right. kind of was in its own way. Yeah, cranked it up. A, they uh, cranked it up yeah. a notch. Yeah, Boss Radio. and. So yeah, I loved it, man. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't want to do anything else. I didn't. I didn't think anything else was hip enough. I didn't think being an actor was as cool. No. I didn't think uh, nothing, man. Being on the radio and playing this music, and talking all this smack, was where it was at. You now know? you were hearing. You were not hearing, uh, you know, necessarily comedic guys. You were hearing kind of big voices, big personalities. They were. They were certainly funny guys in yeah. that. Uh, but but the voices, none of that was probably a, an immediate part of your shtick. No, right? that no, that came from something organic in me. Um, you were a music uh, lover too. I love. You've always music. loved music. I right? loved music. Yeah. And I, but I really started to fall in love. The funny cats back then were. Uh, the, you know, like Robert W. Morgan or, or Gary Owens, you know, yep. and people remember him as the beautiful downtown Burbank guy. But I, I, um, I got it into the jazz jocks too because they sounded cool. Yeah, yeah. KBCA, this Chuck Niles, you know, and uh, <laughs> or Tully Strode, who I got his thing down was like slow traffic to the right, you know, and uh, remember the three essentials in life. Eat, sleep, and be discreet. Uh, eat, sleep, and be discreet later, baby. You know, so <laughs> I dug that, and I wanted to do all that. The comedy part, the voices part, was sort of, I guess, separate. That was cartoons I watched. Yeah. But then it all came together when, in the late 60s, when I was in high school, KRLA began airing something called The Credibility Gap, yep. which was Harry Scherr, it was Michael McCain, it was David L. Lander, and these guys were creating newscasts, but satirical comedic and theatrical presentations newscasts and then came fireside theater mm-hmm. and uh, which was also radio free oz and then came um uh the committee and then came george carlin and then came national lampoon radio so radio 
audio entertainment, voices, characters, it all came together in this marvelous, satirical world yeah. that presented itself in the early 70s. And a lot of those same guys, you talk about Harry Shearer, who also had a real appreciation for some of the old-style radio. I mean, sure it, did. It, 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 the interesting thing is that they weren't necessarily making fun of radio. I think they just saw that with that medium, they could actually use that foundation and and play off everything else that was going on. Also, they had an amazing time, political time, you know, yeah. so many things they could they could talk about that weren't being done. Uh, it, especially even in stand-up comedy that people weren't, until Carlin kind of started to... Yeah. Well, and of, F- Firesign Theater actually did live performances. Right. Uh, but Carlin was a stand-up comic. Firesign right. was theatrical. And uh, I heard a, I heard a, an interview with one of the guys that wrote for National Lampoon. He said something absolutely true. He said, America had an attic that had stuff in it from 1945 to 1970 that nobody had gone up in there yeah. and investigated yet. Yeah. And suddenly people started pulling all that stuff down. Right. All that goofy, weird 50s stuff. All that 60s, all that, you know, short pants and uh, brill-creamed hair and uh, <laughs> just ridiculous stuff that you could just rip to shreds and play with and have fun with. And and I came of age at that time. Yeah. And I was in my early 20s. And uh, I think about, uh, it's it's not political at all, but credibi- credibility gaps yeah. uh, take on the who's on first that they do. Yeah, uh, That's the, the rock promoter coming in. The guess know. who, the who, yeah, and the, yes. The who, exactly. <laughs> To take that crusty old routine and be able to update it, and and again have such an appreciation for the pattern and the rhythm of the original sure. one that Evan Costello did, yeah. but to bring this different sensibility to it, yeah. and they're making drug references and all these other things, well, but it's it's still the, got that rat-a-tat delivery. Yeah, I love the, how they wrap it up. He says, uh, "Here, you just write it. You're kidding? If I could write, I wouldn't have to steal this bit." <laughs> exactly. Great stuff. So yes. that that's an amazing yeah. time to be you, tuning would in. Would you please the... tell me the name of the last act? Yes. Yes. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> okay, have your secretary. Oh, wait a minute! Oh, God, great. it's amazing. Yeah. So to be able to hear that going on, I mean, you're hearing that live every day. Yeah. That's that's inspirational stuff, especially yeah. if you have a mind in any way an inclination to create like that. Were you? Oh, God, were you I... writing? Were you? Were you? A... No, I was standing around with my buddies. In the kitchen, making and fun at of school, people? and underneath a basketball hoop, and making fun of people, and doing voices, and this is and the, we had our little tape recorders. And we yeah, had our, you know, but uh, this is the kind of group Letterman always described in high school that he was never part of the smart kids or the popular kids. He said we were the C students standing around making fun of everybody. Else. Absolutely, yeah. that was me, man. I was about a C student. You know, I was bad. Probably wasn't even that good. Yeah. Uh, you were the student that was in. They would always say the same thing to you. You know, you've got a good mind, Philip. You've got a good brain. What What is wrong with you? You know, right. why don't you? You know, what well, were you encouraged? by anybody to to be creative is there's almost all when i have these conversations i find a couple of uh, things that are always consistent there's usually a champion in there somewhere who gives you a chance to to do something that you weren't sure you were or encouraged part of that i never did you didn't and no I, I myself and my friends explains but a lot there about was, you. <laughs> i don't know what there that were means. no there were no adults <laughs> i have to be honest i don't want to get too heavy but i mean i was a pretty un unsupervised kid you know yeah. in my high school years because my father had left and my mother was under great stress and we didn't have a whole lot of money and uh and, and so i was kind of running wild you yeah. know and and I didn't, but there was no adult that said, aha, let's just take Philip Henry aside and right. turn him into... No, I, I pretty much stumbled my way on through forward in life. And, uh, but I, that, you, but know, you had a group of friends? You yeah, had we, guys we that all, you yeah, these are my, my, my very close friends who still are to this day. None of them got into entertainment except me. 
But we all laughed at the same stuff and yeah. found everything just as, as ridiculously absurd. And the other thing that, that I benefited from was, as you're just indicating, Larry, I grew up in a city that had this massively uh, influential and entertaining medium, uh, media, which was Los Angeles. Uh, there was no national media as we know it today, but the local stuff we had, and of course television too. So it was always there every day on the radio. And, and uh, I, I just saw Allison Martino has a great site called Vintage LA. And she, she put a picture up of the uh, Sunset Strip in 1970. I remember sneaking out at night and jumping into my friend's car and driving to Hollywood and driving down Sunset Boulevard and looking at all the freaks and and just thinking, you know, what I wanted to do with that, yeah, you know, but yeah. Oh, I can't. Even I, but most of my that. life was spent trying to be accepted. I yeah. think mostly, you know, like most kids. By who? By the coolest people. Really? Yeah. I, I didn't want to be uh, weird. I didn't want to be on the outside. Who did you consider the coolest people? Everybody that smoked weed and yeah. uh, listening and, to the right uh, music, to the right cool music, yeah. and uh, and 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 not the jocks, um, but the the. Anybody that tended toward the the hippie or the beatnik thing, I was I was you know one right. of my friends with and wanted to hang with. Uh, uh, were, were you reading a lot? Were there authors? Yeah, there, yeah. Uh, Jack Kerouac was the huge. Okay. Huge. I thought I wanted to be a writer for a long time, and I thought I wanted to be Jack Kerouac for a long. That time. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's the, to me that's that's kind of what your mind your mind works like a writer, really, even though it's largely improvisational. But there's there's more than just. Robin Williams kind of free association going on. You're telling a story more than well. Um, yeah, I, I think feel you like. have to. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Kerouac was simply uh, the hippest thing f- yeah. f- that I could think of because he was doing free, you know, a stream of consciousness, right? Uh, like, for instance, James Joyce, um, and uh, and I also liked reading Her- Herman Hesse, and it, a lot of this stuff was sort of de rigueur for the generation that I was in. Uh, Tolkien suddenly hit the, you know, oh, Tolkien right. was huge, The Hobbit yeah. was huge, the the Fellowship of the Rings, all that stuff, and. Um, and a lot of kind of uh, fringy people like um, uh, I, I just know that there's a book in there that I'm missing somehow. Yeah. Oh, well, I know. Morning of the Magicians. Do you know this book? No. Morning of the uh, Morning of the Magicians is a trip. Look it up. It's a book that was written by a couple of French guys. It came out in like '67 or '68, I think. We passed this thing around until it was dog-eared, and it's basically a book. If you saw the movie Magnolia, you remember the rain of frogs. Frogs, right? Well, that is actually recorded in *Morning of the Magicians*. They uh. claim it happened in in Italy at some time, and there was a rain of blood. And every weird, freaky thing that ever happened in history was in the book *Morning of the Magicians*. Yeah. And that was an influential book for me because. It's like all of a sudden the world is is much much weirder than we even imagine. And then came and then came Eric von Donegan's Chariots of the Gods, oh, which wow. was the first book that dealt with the fact that we are seeds from aliens. That you know that book was big. Well, I saw that everywhere. Everybody yeah. I knew was reading that. They even made Chariots a, of the Gods a bad movie, uh, kind of based yeah. on that, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, documentary style movie yeah. on that. But boy, that boy, that really caused a ruckus. I sure remember did. that. And Bermuda Triangle books were coming out. Yes, everything was getting turned upside down. They say that the seventies was the party that America. America had, and the Hangover too, that we that we finally had for ourselves because we realized we no longer had to be a garrison society. You know, from the beginning of the century of twenty of the twentieth century, America was sort of on the wall with the with the uh, rifle, and we were on the lookout for any uh, empire. We're on the lookout for the Kaiser, and then came the, the Nazis, and then the Japanese, and then comes the commies. And finally, sometime in the sixties and seventies, we went. Wait a minute, we're the most powerful country. We're the most powerful nation on earth. Who's going to mess with us? Yeah. 
we can stand down. It was this less rigid idea of us against them too. Yeah. It was, I mean, the the you know the whether you it's the flower people and the free love and let's love everybody and then it, it kind of expanded. Then Vietnam was obviously a big influence and that old school World War Two noble soldier thing just doesn't fly anymore. It wasn't flying then, and no. that 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 kind of saturated everybody's point of view yeah. after that. I think uh, uh, I don't really know what what you know. I think we have a relationship that's better with the military now i think we we don't mock the young no. soldier anymore no. i think we more or less mock the leadership which is a lot healthier uh, but uh, <laughs> and easier yeah, and easier and, and kind of american you know yeah yeah exactly uh, you know even charles dickens recognized in the 1840s you know in, in a book he wrote called american notes he said these americans they just love to build their heroes up and tear them down yeah as, as early as 1840 dickens saw this about the american uh you know way um, so a lot of that has to do with our, uh, but I, I'm just getting back to the to the seventies. Right. I, I was, I had all this shit going on in my head. The reason why I brought up the thing about being accepted is while this stuff was happening with me, my career was very much a regimented broadcast career. I would get into radio and I would, and I thought somewhere, well, magically I'll just become a personality. Well, it didn't happen that mm-hmm. way because you have to push yourself out of the plane and pull the chute. And I didn't do it. I just kind of stayed between the white lines. You were given a format. You were given and probably liner it. cards to yeah. read. You know, play this song at certain times, right. and that's where. But that's got to build your career now. You know, don't want to piss anybody off. But that's kind of what you do at the beginning yeah. uh, if you if you're doing something that you love and you want to stay in. And I re- I recognize that as well. Although I remember the very first shift I ever did. I actually had such I was I was so ballsy for like being I think sixteen years seventeen years old or something. Yeah, I went and actually went in. I had figured out how to edit tape and I was playing with sound effects and stuff. And I created uh, this produced intro for myself that was like Larry Morgan (laughs) with explosions and crap, and it went into Gary Newman cars. That was the first song I ever played, and I get and I get a call from my program director after my first shift going. Yeah, let's not produce our own intro on our first shift on the weekend in Odessa, Texas. And it was like, oh, okay, really? That, I can't do that. Yeah. And that beat me down for a little bit. It took me a long time until somebody said, no, be an idiot. And it, it's uh, the best PDs I ever had told me it's easier to pull you back than it is to kick you in the Absolutely, ass. Absolutely, man. And, and, and I would, uh, you know... That, you know, you can look back on the uh, radio from the late, uh, from, from following World War II, which is when radio recognized that television was a threat, and radio realized their talent was fleeing to TV, and so what was radio going to do? Radio had to p- pair it all back, yeah. cut the bottom line, cut the budget, let's make it as lean and, and as mean as we can, and let's get that advertising money flowing. And, I, and that's when radio really became just a sort of a commercial machine with disc jockey filler. <laughs> right. Uh, and, and also doing commercials, uh, all the live spots. Yeah. And when you had uh, in the middle there guys that were very personable and doing right. great personality, uh, for a while there, radio thought it could coexist with that, but uh, when they realized that more music, you know, and, and <laughs> wow, we, th- think of the overhead we can save on here, man, just yeah. keep playing these, and who knew that they'd keep playing the same songs over and over for... Oh God. What, what, what was the, which guy, which consultant was it, the format where they were basically playing the same 20 songs in a row? <laughs> well, Bill Drake Is and, the Drake and uh, the... Lee Abrams, right. uh, Drake Chenault, uh, mm-hmm. you, you know, the... the, the uh, you know the culprits are many, uh, and 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 all it did was, um, you know, this town's not big enough for the two of us. Music wins, and you disc jockeys just read the liner cards. You guys are nothing, right. and that 
was what happened ultimately really to me too yeah. man as 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 weird as i was and as and as far reaching as cuz talk radio at least for a while saved personality radio mm-hmm. when talk radio came in and what i mean by that the rush limbaugh era of talk radio it saved uh, personality radio it was almost like the early days of progressive radio where you had cats doing all kinds of crazy yeah, stuff yeah i defy anybody to tell me what was going on at talk radio before before kind of rush, rush. yeah oh, and sucked i remember actually uh one of the guys i worked with when i was uh i, I was a phone op here at kfi when they were top 40 the mm-hmm. last top 40 am station wow. in los angeles big ron o'brien was doing nights yeah and when they eric chase uh, eric chase was mm-hmm. here tim and ev there was Loman and Barkley had been Loman around Barkley, forever, man, yeah. and Jack Armstrong and the Gorilla. That yeah, was the lineup. Yeah. It was it was literally like a team show throughout the entire. Even Byron and Tanaka overnights. Oh, I don't remember, dude. That, man. I'm telling you, there was a team show on every shift if you count Jack Armstrong. And Jack doing the gorilla. was doing the Gorilla. Yeah, yeah he was yeah. basically a, a precursor to the kind of thing you're doing because yeah. he was his own voice. He, he was, was doing awesome, this man. thing. Yeah, um, I and, heard Jack Armstrong in Buffalo. Man, that cat never heard a guy rap as fast as that dude. Oh yeah, Did, he, he was, was. Yeah, yeah, he was. He was nuts, but that was the kind of the last uh, AM top forty that I remember hearing. And uh, um, Big Ron went to work at WNBC in New York, <laughs> and he was telling me about this quote guy Howard Stern who was causing a lot, a lot the of ruckus problems because he was because he, he was it was absolutely that it was this rigid format. And he was going, no, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna play this terrible Barry Manilow song. I'm gonna talk and I'm gonna bring people on. And I'm gonna do something silly because, yeah. What if KFI had taken those wonderful, wonderfully talented people and just taken the music away? Yeah. What do you think that station would have sounded like? It would have been it would have been amazing. Oh, yeah. It would have been amazing. There was so man. much entertainment around the clock on that show. Just but, but yeah. they didn't want to remove the music because they didn't trust the talent. Yeah. Nobody had the trust of the talent. And that was the thing, in my opinion, that you know, killed whatever you want to call radio. I don't know what radio is going to become, but whatever it was, that's the thing that was the death of it. They didn't trust the talent. They didn't trust and didn't like it. To be honest with you, uh, yeah, because you had to deal should. with the, you didn't know how to deal. With, so many management people don't know how to deal with creative personalities, and, and especially if they're bottom line guys and mm-hmm. they're dealing with budgets and and they've got sponsors and all that stuff. You right. know, how many people have you had in your life in your career that defended you because or 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 tried to exhibit patience by saying, what? "Give it time to grow," because yeah. this is not something that's an immediate success. Well, I, 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 I'm sure they were there. I know I had program directors that you know uh, backed me up. Um, and, and when you said those words, "Give it time to grow," it just—I I had a visceral, almost nausea. <laughs> I really did. It wasn't you, Larry, but it was the fact that oh my <laughs> well, god, it, it, it took wouldn't me, be the first time. It took me hurtling back to those days. Yeah. You know, of, oh god, I remember. You know. Give it time to grow, and you could just see some dumbass general manager standing. Well, I don't have the time because you know uh, the home office or something. They need this and that. I know. Let's just put <laughs> in music on, or let's get a concert. You know, the version, uh, the modern day version of let's just play more music is let's just get a conservative host in there. You know, um, yeah. I have nothing again. I'm not again, folks. You know, this is not about the political point of view we're not we're not saying that what we're saying is the sameness of the programming right and the the lack of of uh, of uh, creative approach to it you could yeah. have a million conservatives man if these cats were funny and and you know telling tales and stories and having a ball but they're yeah. all very 
uh, uh, preachy and yeah, and I and I also don't want to feel like we're bagging on radio. No, no, no. I no. actually I, I love radio. I'm working for a station right now where we actually have this philosophy that's so unusual, where we actually get to be ourselves, yeah. and we're not reading liner cards. And I, literally, my program director tells me. You know, I ask about because I'm I'm so anal. I'm Can you going, get me a gig, by the way? Yeah, absolutely. You know what? <laughs> <laughs> if Phil and Larry show anybody? Phil and Larry, hey, uh, man. You know, it's like, does the sweeper go here? And he yeah. literally says, just make it sound good. Yeah. Just make it sound good. Now, th- and the only reason I bring that up well, is that's that kind is... Of a, there's a trap that he's setting for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. It didn't sound good. Yeah, it doesn't sound good. I thought it did. But it makes me work a little harder at actually yeah. doing that as opposed to just going through the motions. Where, yeah. where along the line did you... Break. I mean, the the story that uh, is everywhere is you on the air in Ventura, and you did uh, an Iraqi voice, I guess. With, yeah. But but what, were you trying to break out before that? I mean, there was. Were you trying? Yeah. Stuff? Uh, well, I had tried some things. Um, I had a part time job at uh, KCAL out in Redlands. Um, I was doing overnights at KLSX after I lost my morning show. I stayed on doing weekends, which is about the most humiliating thing you can do to yourself. Oh but God. I did. Uh, and I was doing some things, but it wasn't until I got to Ventura uh, that I decided that I was going to, uh, I guess, you know, I reached that point where I said, I'm going to be who I am. I'm going to yeah. be as authentic as I can. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But I got to do what I got to do. You know? Now, and, you had been bouncing around, right? I mean, yeah, I'd been a disc jockey from 1973 to around 19. 19- 8990 and, and and averaging how long it is Yeah, well, it's probably about 2 years. Yep, that's yeah. about right. That's about yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Two years that's pretty station. standard. Got to LA in 78 yeah. and uh went from uh the old K-West uh which is now Power 106. I went right. from that to down to KGB FM in San Diego for about a year, came back up to KEZY in Anaheim. And then I went to work for Westwood One as a producer for a year. And then I went to work for KNX-FM and then KLSX, the classic rock. I was also at KMET for a while in its waning days. And then KLSX uh, as a disc jockey morning drive guy with uh, Marshall Phillips. Um, Now, how do you stay motivated to stay in that business when you're bouncing around that much? And it's not, I mean... You feel fortunate that you got a job because I... You know, Larry, I had so many, I got so many weird things going on in my head, oh, you know, really? that I finally have given voice. <laughs> but back in those days, before I did that, I felt that no way can what I have an instinct to do work on radio. There's no way these guys are going to let me do this. Yeah. There's no way these cats are gonna, And I just, you're too weird, Phil. It's going to be too weird. <laughs> and so I, I, I would get fired and, you know, you're kind of half, you're doing half measures until finally I lost my job at KLSX. I got, I got canned out of there. And I did a little part-time thing at KFI, but I uh, I was on a train going to see my girlfriend in Portland. I decided I think I'll take the train because I like the idea of a train. I haven't been on a train, you know, and I got a little first-class berth. And I was sitting there looking at the sun going down over the Pacific. And it sounds corny, but it's true. I made this pledge to myself that I was wherever it was going to take me, I was going to be as authentic an artist as I could on the radio because I had to see it through, man. I started yeah. my career as a radio artist. I was not going to leave until I saw it through. I had taken acting classes and done a lot of other things, but no, I I, I knew I had the talent to do something better than what I was doing. And so I, my father used to say, send out a hundred resumes and you get at least one good job offer. I sent 70 and I got two job offers and one was from Seattle. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, uh, and another was from Ventura and I turned the Seattle job down because I knew it was going to be a bad move. I was going to be working for a big corporate 
company, mm -hmm. and I could just see these guys canning me in six months. So I went ahead and I went with the smaller station in Ventura, and I stayed there for a year and a half before I got fired. You know, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. you doubled your time frame, yeah. but you got to, but but you but began I, to develop what right. you did. And right? I had a great program director up there, a guy named Rich Galano, who said, "Just prep your show like you're not going to get any calls." Man, that was the greatest oh, thing anybody man. ever said to me because then I was like, just. Bam! I could just just do anything, try anything. How long did it take for you to get a reaction to the kind of stuff that you were doing? Well, it was fortunate. It was a, a fortuitous because when I started at KVEN in 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 August of 1990, the Gulf War was beginning to uh, uh, Desert Shield. There were troops going over, and it looks like we were going to be at war in a few months. So through that whole fall of 1990, there was a tension in the country. There was a military buildup going on in the Gulf because Saddam Hussein had invaded Kuwait. And uh, I played it, man, and uh, I came on with this Iraqi character. And the reason why I did that is because I, I had heard some dude reading an interview with Saddam Hussein on KABC, as a matter of fact. Mm. And he was sort of playing the parts, but straight. You know, he was hitting a filter and going, and he was using his own voice. And he was saying, well, Mr. S Hussein, what do you think about Kuwait? And then he'd hit this filter. I believe that Kuwait is a country that should be taken over and this and that and that. I thought, well, what if I just came out as Iraqi, you know? So, I, and, you know, I used to play these uh, characters all the time. You know, I could do a voice lead. And so uh, one day I walked into the studio after doing all this goofy sh stuff. I mean, I started one show standing on my head. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's anything. But I... Which day, is great radio, yeah, by the way. You know, well, it, it sounds like this. <laughs> you know, because it sounds like your sinuses are jamming. <laughs> And uh, I did a lot of monologuing, but one day I walked in and I said, uh, Phil Andre is not, uh, this is Rajfinin, um, but thank you for KVN to let me do uh, the show. And all of a sudden these calls started coming in, and my producer at the time, a guy named Greg, Glass, uh, Greg Glasser, said, we're getting calls for the Iraqis, what, for the Iraqi, what do you want to do? I said, send them on through. <laughs> you know? So that became, that began. So that really was a moment of inspiration. Between, between the sunset on the Pacific and, and a re, an immediate reaction to something, you knew you had something. Yeah, and, and, and my ability, um, and not so much my ability, but my desire to make these characters, because I think the funniest stuff is when a character is right on the edge of reality, like really, really believable, yeah. but just saying really crazy stuff. Yeah. You know, well, that's and what so, I was saying before: is that your people are all types I recognize. You're, yeah. you're, I mean, they're not so broad that you can't go that you, that you can't find. Oh, I know somebody in my life that's got that same attitude and that same sensibility. So, sure, that, you know, that, you, that, were, are these people that you feel like you know? I mean, are they? Well, sure. I mean, the the I do a character named Margaret, and I do another one named Bobby Dooley. These are females. That's my mom. Yeah. You know, um, Bobby talks like this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my mother was like that. She would look me up and down. I could be saying to her, Mom, I've just won the Nobel Prize. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she's looking to see what kind of shoes you're wearing, you know. That was totally my mom, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mom, I won the Nobel Prize. And uh, are those the shoes you're going to be wearing oh, to the God. thing? Yeah. You know, uh, that was my mother all the way. And, and there's varieties, variations on my father. Um, and uh, friends of mine, you know, uh, sure. do a character named Jeff Dowder, who is based on a, you know, a friend of mine who's now passed on, uh, Paul Compton, uh, not the radio guy, but a different guy, uh -huh. He's a beautiful, wonderful man who is a very dear friend of mine. Uh, but Paul was, uh, except Paul wasn't. Jeff Dowder is kind of like this. He's a little bit sunbaked. Paul in real life 
was, uh, uh, Phil, uh, hey, man, um, did you read that book I gave you, uh, you know, the da- Dashiell Hammett, man? Have you, have you, uh, no, I haven't read it yet. Yeah, hey, Phil, uh, you know, you ought to get into that book because it's, you know, uh, just loved Paul. Are you still finding that you can discover new places to go with The Voice? Are there, are there, um, I mean, it, it's rare when you will introduce a new character, but they do come they, along. They come along. You know, um, it takes a lot probably to get you to something that feels unique. I would guess. Yeah, I mean, like for instance, uh, Doug Danger is a character I did. A, I'm a gay man and gay journalist, and uh, right. you know, and he's based on a voice I actually heard of, like Gary Spivey was, I think, the guy. But Doug is 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 getting a little hackneyed. Uh, I don't know about how because he was based on the whole act up uh, thing, right? Where you're you're not just gay, but you're gay, you know, and. Um, it was an activist political thing, um, and Doug is the kind of gay guy that he worked because he would kick ass on anybody that gave him any shit. So he wasn't a sissy. Uh, he wasn't a traditionally satirized gay character where, you know, he was swishy. He was very uh, macho and was ready to duke it out with anybody that, you know, right. wanted it. And that automatically puts uh, homophobes on, you know, <laughs> on edge. So he was always great. You know, I'm a gay man. You keep saying you're gay. That's right. You got a problem with that? You know? Uh, I'm gonna. Uh, who are you voting for, Bush? Yeah, well, I'm gay now. Who are you voting for? You know? <laughs> um, so yeah, he is cool. But I think um, if you hear a voice or you hear a character, and that's what happens to me, that you immediately incorporate. Uh, there's a character I heard, uh, and he sounded like this. His name is Derek Bell. He played for the Houston Astros, and now I turn him into a character named Daryl Weber. And this is a. Uh, uh, I'm gonna play some blues for you. My wife. I love her very much, but she's got to stop with a ham sandwich. It's got to stop, you know. <laughs> but I heard that voice one day driving to work. Uh-huh. It, was, it was Derek Bell of the Houston Astros. He right. said, "Well, I'm, we've got a great baseball team." I said, "God, that voice is awesome." You know, I gotta do, I gotta do that voice. If I hear something that I can immediately incorporate it, immediately turn into something, I'll, I'll use it. You know, what's amazing to me about how, what you do and how you do it, and and the story you told me about being on the train is being your authentic self. From mm-hmm. coming from somebody who is so many other people all of the time, but what that must do is because I know so many people in radio and especially like morning guys because we've all had to deal with those morning guys who who have this persona or and even around the station and if I talk long enough you'll start to figure out who I'm talking about to the point of like wearing makeup you know a TV makeup around the station but the, <laughs> th- there must be something that is such a release for you to be able to you talking to... about George Norrie no. no I'm kidding I'm no, 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 I'm joking no 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 I'm joking oh, George don't <laughs> start guessing making a, wearing makeup don't start guessing no I'm not gonna there must be something that that is a great release to be able to be all those other people to allow you to be Phil I well, mean in a way, it's kind of lets you just be the the calm in the storm when yeah. maybe normally you would never be yeah. that guy. It's the way I express myself um, on as a performer, right? Um, as a as a guy, as Phil, I'm just talking yeah. like I am right now. You yeah. know, so a lot of people will say. Do you ever go into voices when you're making love to your girlfriend? <laughs> no, are you crazy? No. What are you, nuts, man? Okay, well, there's my Maybe next question. Well, pe- I know. Well, people say, you know, you must be nuts or something. Well, no, I pay a mortgage. I pay my bill. How could I be nuts? You know, I'm in the world, and I'm, and I'm, uh, I'm making it. Uh, no, there's a big difference between doing voices and hearing and voices. And hearing them, yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah, right. I think so. I hear voices. And maybe a fine line, but there is yeah. a difference. Yeah. I mean, if you're a guy, um, it depends on what you, what you love, really. And, and you know... I heard somebody say, this is actually even better than, he said, do what you're good at. Don't do what you love. Do what you're good at. Yeah. And it just so happens, 
this is what I'm good at, I think. You know, I, I don't know what else I'm good at, I, but it's uh, 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 playing characters right. and, and creating these little uh, uh, plays, right. these little performances. And yes, all of that comes from me, my experiences as a kid, my, my family, the way I see the world, the way I see people you know, mm-hmm. do the world around me. And, uh, and every day we have, uh, God knows, all kinds. Of, you know, I've got a guy named Larry uh, Grover, and uh, Larry's based, uh, Larry smiles. Uh, because I ran into a guy in Vegas, and I, I don't I don't know the guy to this day. I don't know who he is. But just a guy that came out of the hotel at the win, and he's, he's he, and he looks at me like this. Larry he says, "Hey, how you doing?" He's got a smile on his face. I said, "I'm fine. How are you?" I'm terrible, terrible. Just <laughs> but dropped, he can't stop, and he can't stop. He's yeah. Thirty thousand dollars at the table last night. Oh, I'm ruined. I'll never come back to this toilet bowl as long as I live. Well, have a nice day. And I thought, oh, that's really funny. The guy that's smiling through the, through his pain. You I know? know that guy. <clears throat> yeah, we, we do. And so he became Larry Grover for me. You know? uh-huh. And I've got another guy by the name of Vernon Dozier, and this is the football coach that my son's had at uh, Oaks Christian. And, uh, you know, and I just add a little thing to him. Now, let me tell you something. <laughs> you know, he gets a little bit, he gets to that, you know, that, 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 that blood pressure starts yes. to come. Yeah. Who are the guys, the, the sports analysts, um, that uh, it was just a segment you would do, like going into Monday Night Football or, oh, for, or before Joe the weekend? Oh, my God. Joe Dickhead and the professor. Dude. And uh, oh. that was based upon, that was based on all those, all those touts in yes. Vegas. Yes. This is Joe Dickhead with the professor. We've got, you know. You know, we got our picks, you know. And the information that you was guys gave. All bullshit. Yeah. Yeah, well, it was just benign. Yeah. There was nothing to it. I, you know, <laughs> they're gonna, I think they'll win. I mean, it was just yeah. the worst advice and they, ever. they would blow it. They'd say, we'll give you our winner. Yes, we think Buffalo will be. Well, what are you doing? <laughs> you just give them, you know. <laughs> That that yeah. segment, uh, I would, I would, I literally would be, I would be on the floor gasping for breath when I would hear those guys because I knew exactly what those guys were, and they couldn't pronounce anything. It was always and the Kinkinetti Bengals. <laughs> I can't pronounce this, you know. Yeah, the Kinkinetti Bengals. So, uh, Phil, I've been talking to you for an hour. I, I feel like we could go on forever, but yeah, I, man. I, 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 well, I, I didn't even get to your here. acting, and and I'm so I get so excited when I see you show up on a on a sh- on a show. Uh, yeah. You're so good at that, and that's such well, a thanks. different animal than yeah. um, than what you do on a, on a day to day basis. And you're yeah. really good at it. Oh, well, thanks. And man. they don't. And thank God they don't always have you playing a radio guy. I know. Yeah. Well, sometimes. A, sometimes. I, I, I think that uh, when I look at that, I go, well, you know. I look at the early days of Harry Belafonte, who uh, became such a terrific actor. But in his very early movies, I see him. They yeah, would you play the conga drums? Okay, you know, eh, Bobby, you know. And so he's playing like this guy, but they still have him singing. You know, right, right. I, I think it's just the 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 way it goes. But um, uh, I also have been doing a one man show and uh, some stand up, which I really had a lot of fun with. And we just did Sketchfest in San Francisco. Oh, and, great! And that was fun. And um, just just. I, before I shuffle off the mortal coil, man, I want to do it all. I want to do everything that I think I can do. Right, That's all. Right. And they, like they said, you know, don't do what you love. Do what you're good at. And I and I think I'm good at all of these things. So I'll just try and keep Did, doing. Have it, you, you seen know? Uh, Hail Caesar? The Coen Brothers I have movie. Not, no, man. Um, I love those guys. I'm pretty. I, I, I love them so much. <laughs> yeah. th- this movie is so 
good and subtle in some ways and so kind of broad and kooky in other ways, which is kind of what they do. And, yeah. You know, they, they just keep – it's kind of like with you. They just keep <laughs> it this side of over the top. That's right. And still make it relatable. And the yeah. great thing about this is that it all focuses on what could have been this huge caricature of a studio head in the old Hollywood, you know, in the, yeah. in the 30s and 40s. Josh Brolin plays him beautifully. Oh, uh, man, but the whole good. kind of message behind this thing at the end of it – and this is not a spoiler alert – it, it's exactly that philosophy. He's dealing with the craziest, most insane, ridiculous scenarios from day to day. His days are incredibly long. He's missing life with his family, but he's really good. I mean, he's really good at it. And they show this guy not the the typical, not the management type that we're talking about. The old school, like uh, Selznick, those guys okay. who were really good producers, yes. who understood how to deal with talent, That's right. who knew how to say the right thing at the right time, who knew how to encourage talented people who were very sensitive or whatever. Yeah. And at the end of the day, he goes, I love it because I'm good at it. Yeah. And that was hugely inspiring. That little moment at the end of the movie is hugely inspiring to me. So it right re- on, resonates man. what you're saying yeah. right there. David Selznick really brought Gone with the Wind to life. It yeah. wasn't going to happen without him. Yeah, he messed the script up, and he he didn't get some things, but he, by the force of his will, he cast that thing, and he cast it exactly the way it should yeah. have been cast, you know? Yeah. So, uh, you know, that. by the way, the guy who said uh, do what you're good at, not which, what you love, was a guy named Trevor Duvall, who's a voiceover guy. He was in Galaxy, uh, uh, what is it called? Galaxy. Sorry, Trevor, but, you know, I don't know the goddamn movies. <laughs> what is it? The Galaxy, Conquerors of the Galaxy, the Ghosts of the Galaxy, the thing of the, ga- the Galaxy thing. <laughs> the, the, gal- big, the big ass Galaxy movie. Oh, with uh, he did Chris the, he Pratt? Did animated, yeah, he did the animated version. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, Trevor's does a lot of stuff, but we were talking. Um, because we were both in this show called F is for Family, which is Bill Burr's animated show, which is right. a lot of fun. Right. And we were just rapping there with uh, some people. He said, yeah, just he said, like a guy said to me once, do what you're good at. I said, God damn, that's the smartest thing I've heard in years, yeah, man. Yeah. Well, see, this you're inspiring to me because of just the way you've done what you've done and been able to adapt and still stay authentic to yourself. I, I I think uh Well you're you're doing it man. You're surviving. You're giving yourself the platform to launch into the things that you want to do. This is the thing it, it, what happened with me is also what Marin talked about mm-hmm. a little bit and I think even Hardwick went through his own thing. It was like radio rejected me at one point. I have not been fired as many times as you have. Uh, <laughs> I've I have well, usually Well, maybe I got to keep trying. I, <laughs> no, I, you know, I, I, I believe <laughs> me, there's still plenty yeah. of opportunity, especially <laughs> after they hear this conversation. Uh <laughs> Uh, and, and I, I rejected radio for a year and decided I just I needed to figure out what it was that was going to make me happy. Right. And I went back to radio because I am good at it. Yeah. But I also gave myself this platform because one of the things that I realized, I, I, I was working at an album rock station. I, w- I would go in the studio and I would have Graham Nash for 45 minutes and we would have this amazing conversation. Oh, man, that's great. And I would get to use two minutes of it on the air the next day. Uh, was that not enough? Right? Or it, was it enough? It w- the two minutes was good enough? It, the two minutes was good enough for yeah. my programming people. Okay. But for me, it was like, they, don't, they didn't get to hear this conversation that led up to me talking about Joni Mitchell that made him emotional, and he started to reminisce. Yeah, and I man. heard stuff from him I'd never heard before. Yeah. But I didn't have time to put that on the actual radio. So for me, it's like, I'm good at having conversations with people because I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely interested. I don't need to have an outcome other than I had a great talk with somebody. Yeah. So that's what this is. Well, that's awesome because you're, you are. This has been enjoyable for me. And if it's what you're good at, if it's what you enjoy, you're, I, I can tell 
tell you this, you're good at it. Oh, okay? great. And, uh, and damn it, I wish I'd been recording this. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh-oh, I've done that. You know, oh, the audacity, are you kidding me? No, man? you haven't. I have. I've actually got, oh, shoot. Well, we do two recordings. We have a video cast, we have an right, audacity. Right. Uh, so we can strip it off the video if we need to, but it's always kind of a drag, you know, that you didn't record it. But uh, no, and, and uh, that's the name of the game, man. And I yeah. think that... Um, I think uh, uh, if you want to talk about breaking all the rules, Art Bell was another guy who was very inspirational, I mm-hmm. think, for a lot of people. I, I saw what Art was doing, man. The guy was doing everything wrong. I say that with quotes, Art. Right. Of course, you're doing it right. Starts the hour with a commercial. 40-minute <laughs> phoner interviews. Right. You talk about too long with Graham Nash. Come on, man. Art's doing 40 minutes with some guy that sees a liquid being coming out of his toaster. <laughs> and this is like, and people are digging it, you know? People are digging. So, you know, whoever that programmer was, these people, every instinct, it, it seems, that the uh, technocracy had was wrong. And right. it's driven the business to this sort of place where it is. And I, I, I hope it resurrects. I really but do. This, you know? but, but isn't this the business now? I well, mean, aren't, aren't we really talking about you, you? I think the question is not what's the future of radio, but mm. isn't this the future of, of what people this is what need people are doing. from uh, audio? Yeah, I mean, I mean from, my, my, my friends listen to podcasts. Automobiles are going to have the touch screen right. where you can just pull it up. So, yeah, I don't know what radio will be used for other than maybe it'll revert to some sort of, I don't know, what do you think, uh, Coast Guard communications? Uber dispatching? Uber dispatching, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, All right, brother, thank you. Thank Larry. you for being in the Snark Monkey universe, man. And uh, yeah. I, uh, you are a modern-day hero. <laughs> oh, man, so thanks. Keep it going. And I hope that uh, they treat you right around here, dude. No, no. But uh, <laughs> somehow, I made like I say, when the key card works, I'm, it's a big deal. Yeah. All right. All right, buddy. Get a monkey. Get a monkey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.